What a tremendously odd week for a tremendously odd president. He has a way of stumbling stupidly into the weirdest scandals, pitting himself against the most sympathetic antagonists he can find. During the campaign, it was John McCain, whom he specifically criticized for the one thing we can all agree was pretty admirable about John McCain, his record as a war prisoner, along with a disabled reporter, a judge of Mexican descent, a pageant contestant he called Fat, and the father and mother of a dead American soldier who just happened to be a Muslim. It is still remarkable to me that he managed to become president after any single one of these events, let alone all of them together, throw in the pussy tape, adding on his ignorance and racism and general unfitness for the job. Seriously, let me just take a quick moment to say it. This is not normal. Welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Bernie, and this week, Trump managed to get into another fight with the family of a soldier who died in action. It began two weeks ago when four U.S. soldiers on a patrol in Niger were ambushed by dozens of fighters affiliated with ISIS and, and killed. And I, I want to take a moment to discourage liberals from trying to turn this into Trump's Benghazi. I, I've seen a lot of comparisons in that direction, and it's important to remember how what happened after Benghazi was truly shameful. The way Republicans turned that tragic attack into a political cudgel and held hearing after hearing after hearing for no other purpose than to try to damage President Obama and Hillary Clinton politically. And while yes, we should work to find out exactly what happened in Niger and whether we can do anything to prevent similar bloodshed, we absolutely should not use the attack to go after Trump himself. And you know I'm always ready to go after Trump. I mean, I have a whole podcast about it and everything. And what Trump absolutely, positively, did do wrong in the wake of Niger was essentially to go silent. He didn't say anything publicly about the soldiers' deaths, which was odd. And apparently he didn't contact the families of the deceased either, not until well after it had become a story in the press. Just listen to him answering a question about it from Monday. Why haven't we heard anything from you so far about the soldiers that were killed in Niger? And what do you have to say about uh, them? I've written them personal letters. Uh, they've been sent or they're going out tonight, but they were written during the weekend. Uh, I will, at some point during the, the period of time, call the parents and uh, the families, because I have done that traditionally. Uh, I felt very, very badly about that. I always feel badly. It's, it's the toughest. The toughest calls I have to make are the calls where uh, this happens. Soldiers are killed. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. Now, it gets to a point where, you know, you make four or five of them in one day is a very, very tough day. For me, that's by far the toughest. So, so even if he is telling the truth about writing the letters, which had not yet gone out, Remember, we're talking about well over a week after the incident had happened. And what's worse, the person he pities here is himself. He talks about what a hard day it is for him to make four or five phone calls to families who have lost children or spouses or parents. And yeah, that's tough. But who says that in that moment? Who thinks most about his own plight when he's calling the families of dead service members? Donald Trump does. But at this point, 
We're still talking about a, a small story. Yes, he should have contacted the families sooner than he did, but he's getting around to it. But this is Donald Trump we're talking about. So instead of making this a one-day story that goes away, he immediately, and I mean immediately, makes this worse. He went on. The traditional way, if you look at uh, President Obama and other presidents, most of them uh, didn't make calls. A lot of them didn't make calls. Now, I'm pretty sure Abraham Lincoln didn't pick up the phone and, and call any families of troops who died in the Civil War. President Obama definitely did call the families of troops who died while he was president. As many outraged officials from his administration attested literally in the moments after Trump made this claim. So by telling a straight-up lie, Trump makes it a bigger story, extends it to another news cycle. Remember, we're still a few steps from where he gets into the fight with the Gold Star family. I really want to convey for future historians who are digging this podcast out of layers of ash from the Yellowstone supervolcano exactly how bonkers this presidency was. Because now that Trump has falsely accused Obama of never calling families of troops who died in action, Trump has to do something even more outrageous in defense of himself. Conveniently, he has a chief of staff whose son died in the line of service. And the next day, he goes on Brian Kilmeade's radio show and claims John Kelly did not personally receive a call from Obama in the wake of his son's death. So the day before, Trump had said sometimes he calls, sometimes he sends letters, sometimes both. But the next day, he turns his chief of staff's dead son into a political weapon to hurl at President Obama, who, let's remember, isn't actually involved in this story at all. Needless to say, John Kelly immediately resigned after the president used his son in that despicable way, because his honor as both a father and as a decorated former Marine general means more to him than... No, I can't even pretend that's what happened. We'll get to John Kelly in a little bit. But first, let's get to the call. On Tuesday, Trump calls the widow of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, who is in a car with multiple family members, as well as Congresswoman Frederica Wilson, who is a close friend of the family. Representative Wilson says Trump told the widow he knew what he was signing up for hurts anyway, which is perhaps one of the worst things he could have possibly said. I want to say that again. He knew what he was signing up for, but I guess it hurts anyway. Wilson said the widow was in tears and that, quote, he couldn't even remember his name, meaning her late husband's name. The next day, of course, Trump takes to Twitter to deny it. Democrat Congresswoman totally fabricated what I said to the wife of a soldier who died in action. And I have proof. Sad. Have you ever noticed how whenever Trump claims to have secret proof of something, the proof never sees the light of day? He claimed to have proof Obama wasn't born in America. He claimed to have proof James Comey lied about their conversation. And now he claims he has proof Wilson is lying about this conversation. Later Wednesday, he said Representative Wilson had backed off her statement. Didn't say what that congresswoman said. Didn't say it at all. She knows it. And she now is not saying it. But not only was that not true, the family had backed her up. So let's take a quick recap of where we are so far. Trump takes about 12 days to call the widow of a soldier who died in action. He lies about President Obama making those calls. He uses his own chief of staff's dead son to deflect criticism from himself. And when he makes the call, he says the dead soldier knew what he was signing up for, then never claims he said that. 
So he's already extended this story through most of the week, getting into yet another public spat with a family of a dead U.S. service member. And Thursday, after using his son as a political prop, Trump sends Chief of Staff John Kelly out to the press room podium. Kelly talked movingly about what happens when a service member like his son dies in the line of duty. But here's the key part of what Kelly said. Well, let me tell you what I tell him. And what, let me tell you what my best friend, Joe Dunford, told me, because he was my casualty officer. He said, Kel, um, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do when he was killed. He knew what he was getting into by joining the, that 1%. He knew what the possibilities were because we're at war. And when he died, in the four cases we're talking about in Azure, my son's case in Afghanistan, when he died, he was surrounded by the best men on this earth, his friends. That's what the president tried to say to, a fam- to four families the other day. First thing we need to be clear about is how different what Kelly said is from what Trump said on the call. Kelly says these men died doing what they care about, surrounded by people they care about. Trump said he knew what he was signing up for. So maybe Kelly tried to get Trump to say the right thing. And Trump, being Donald Trump, having not an ounce of sympathy or decency in his entire body, screwed it up royally and said something terrible instead. But let's be clear here. What Kelly did at that podium is try to explain why Trump said what he said. And then he went on to criticize Congressman Wilson for talking about the conversation. In other words, he confirmed her story the exact story that President Trump denied. Trump lied about what he said, and both he and John Kelly dragged a congresswoman through the mud for telling the truth. Because with this administration, it is always the people who say what Trump did who are the targets. The media, the whistleblowers, the leakers, the scientists, the judges, the activists, the congresswoman who heard the call. They're the targets, because they're the truth-tellers. And if this administration has one enemy, it's not North Korea, it's not the media, it's not Democrats, it is the truth itself. While we're on the subject of the military, the Army announced a shocking new policy this week. For the time being, recruiters should not sign up any new recruits who are green card holders. Now, remember, We're not talking about undocumented immigrants here, many of whom, just as an FYI, serve our country honorably. Green card holders are documented immigrants. Green cards are, you know, the documents. Uh, Mike originally reported this story, and you can find a link to that story and all the stories I cover on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. And later, Mike issued an update of the story when the Army clarified that the directive only applied to the Army Reserve which is odd because that wasn't in the original announcement to recruiters. And the army is notoriously bureaucratic. It tends to be sticklers about that kind of detail. So I don't know if that was just an error or if it was a partial reversal of the policy once it saw the light of day. What I do know is that either way, this policy is anti-immigrant. Now green card holders have to wait until their background checks are complete before joining the reserves. Only the backlog of checks is so long, there's at least a year's delay. So this is going to keep people from joining the reserves. And here's the thing. 
If you're going to require background checks on people going into the military, whether or not they're an immigrant is not actually a good predictor of whether they should be subject to that check. We have a huge and growing problem with white nationalism in this country, and everyone knows there are people who come out of the military with military training who go on to join those movements and those groups and those militias. So ask yourself, why are we focusing our background checks on immigrants? If we're asking anyone who joins the military about their background, why aren't we asking everyone? I like smooth segues almost as much as I dislike Donald Trump. So while we're on the subject of immigration, let's talk about abortion. But an abortion for an immigrant. Oh, see, you didn't know what I was up to there, did you? So an unnamed, undocumented immigrant currently being held in a U.S. detention center has sued for the right to access an abortion. She's 15 weeks pregnant and she's 17 years old. A judge ruled that of course she should have the right to an abortion because yes, even undocumented immigrants are allowed constitutional rights. And there is no reasonable argument the government can make why it is in the interest of the United States to deny this woman an abortion. But the Justice Department, which you may or may not remember is currently run by the actual devil, disagrees with the law, saying in its filing it has, quote, strong and constitutionally legitimate interest in promoting childbirth, which, what? Why does the Justice Department have an interest in promoting childbirth? That is weird and extremely creepy. Getting a real Handmaid's Tale vibe there, Jeff Sessions. And that's a good analogy, because the only reason the United States government believes it has the power to stop this woman from having an abortion is because she's in its custody. That is, the government has essentially absolute power over her life and her movements right now. And because the people in power are against abortion, they believe they have the right to tell her she can't have one. But they don't want to stop at undocumented immigrants in U.S. custody. People like Jeff Sessions want to tell every single woman in the nation they aren't allowed to have abortions, or use birth control, or even have sex outside the bounds of marriage. They want to tell women what they can and cannot do. That's what this case is about. They have the power over this woman they want over all women. Last week, Trump did something really awful late Thursday, and it just missed making it into the podcast. He promised to eliminate the cost-sharing reductions in the Affordable Care Act, which was a move that will raise premiums and served one purpose, and one purpose only, to undermine Obamacare even further. That's it. He didn't even come up with a fake excuse. He raised premiums on Americans and admitted he was trying to fuck up their health care even more. The idea, of course, was to threaten Democrats into coming to the table to support some kind of health care plan. And lo and behold, folks, this week, an actual bipartisan plan to improve Obamacare emerged. It is, of course, far from perfect, but it would undo Trump's action on CSRs uh, along with some other improvements. And the bill, crafted by Republican Senator Lamar Alexander and Democrat Patty Murray, has 24 co-sponsors in the Senate, 12 from each party. And Trump came out and said he supports it. And then he came out and said he doesn't support it. And I swear to God, I honestly have no idea what his current position on this bill is. 
I, I think he might have swung back again, but that may have been a fever dream. Remember, Trump doesn't care about policy. He doesn't care what's in the bills or the millions of people they'll affect. He only cares about getting credit for passing something. And this is especially true about health care. He never had a plan to replace Obamacare. He just wanted Congress to pass something, anything he could sign. And Republicans, who you might remember control both houses of Congress, failed multiple times to deliver his precious political victory. So now he's in a quandary. The last thing he wants is to get behind another bill that's going to fail, which would make him look even weaker. On the other hand, he doesn't want to not get credit if Congress finally manages to pass some kind of health care bill. And those are his only considerations, not how to deliver health care to the most Americans the most effective way possible, not even some deeper ideological opposition to giving people health care, just what Donald Trump can take credit for. Of course he keeps flipping back and forth. It probably hurts his brain to think about it. Maybe he should go see a doctor. Folks, it takes a special kind of man to drain the swamp right here in Washington, D.C. A man with integrity? A man with guts? A man with perfectly normal-sized hands? And that man is Donald Trump. That's why every appointment he makes is the best person for the job. A person with no possibility of influence peddling or corruption or personal profiteering off their public service. Take, for example, Trump's nominee to lead the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which oversees the National Weather Service. Trump's choice, Barry Myers, is the CEO of AccuWeather, a private forecasting service. And sure, yes, some years ago, Myers lobbied Congress to make it illegal for the National Weather Service to offer certain information for free to consumers that his company could charge money for. And yes, that information included things like hourly updates and life-saving alerts. But does that mean when he runs the agency, he'll limit what the National Weather Service does in order to help his family-run business make more money? My goodness, of course not. After all, all he has to do is follow the example of his boss, the President of the United States, a fine and upstanding human being who would never, ever charge the Secret Service gobs of money to protect him, or try to make a profit by doubling the initiation fee at his private club and then showing up there regularly to advertise it as president. The swamp will be drained any minute now. I'm not sure I talk enough, I'm not sure it's possible to talk enough about how Trump is just kind of a gross human being, how the most basic notions of decency are so foreign to him that it can take your breath away. There was a good example this week. Axios reported Trump has been speculating that he'll be able to appoint up to four Supreme Court justices in his first term. He already put Gorsuch in the seat Mitch McConnell stole for him. He believes Kennedy will retire before his term is up, and folks, that's possible. And when asked about the other two, he speculated that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor will die. But he didn't just hope for their deaths, which would be bad enough. He commented on their health, talking about Ginsburg's weight and Sotomayor's diabetes. She's dealt with it since she was a child. 
So not only is he speculating openly about the deaths of two Supreme Court justices, which is already completely inappropriate for a president of the United States, but he's making comments about their health and even their bodies because they're women, of course. When you look at the course of his life, from long before his political career when he pretended to be a PR flack to brag to tabloids about his sex life, to the days he was the head cheerleader of the birther movement, to his racist, sexist campaign for president, to everything he has done in the past 39 weeks, you get the sense that there is a piece of this man's soul missing. And it goes back to the first story I talked about in this episode. There has to be something truly wrong with someone who can't simply contact the families of soldiers who gave their lives in the service of this country and offer simple condolences. In this man's hands, that act has become a fiasco. Ask yourself, how and why? What is so fundamentally and deeply wrong with Donald Trump that he does these things? And how did we let this man become president? Well, that's a depressing thought. So let's talk about Christmas. When people ask me what my favorite season is, there's no question. As a secular Jew, my favorite season is the war on Christmas. We put up decorations like the giant Christmas kills sign, all lit up with flashing lights. We bake delicious poison cookies for anyone who dares to say Merry Christmas to us. And of course, we exchange politically correct gifts like non-GMO beard oil and vegan marijuana shoes. The irony is, even though I'm a secular Jew, I actually love Christmas. Just ask my Episcopalian wife. The tree, the stockings, the whole nine yards. And when someone says Merry Christmas to me, I just say thank you or even Merry Christmas right back. So I find stuff like this hilarious. You know, we're getting near that beautiful Christmas season that people don't talk about anymore. <laughs> they don't use the word Christmas because it's not politically correct. You go to department stores and they'll say Happy New Year and they'll say other things and it'll be red. They'll have it painted, but they don't say, well, guess what? We're saying Merry Christmas again. This was a speech Trump gave this week to the Value Voters Summit. And what amazes me about Christian extremists like these is that they want the government involved in their religion. They want the president to somehow enforce what department store employees say during the holidays. Why would you want that? Maybe I'm a little too into movies like It's a Wonderful Life, but I've always thought of Christmas as not just a religious holiday, but a kind of celebration of fellowship. I, I've never felt like it's something that has to exclude me. But what people like Trump and the value voters crowd do with this rhetoric is turn Merry Christmas into a political statement. When they say they want people to say Merry Christmas again, they mean they want Merry Christmas to only apply to them. They want to turn it into a code for, you're one of us. And I don't know about you, but I think that takes all the fun out of Christmas. But then, taking the fun out of things is kind of what these people do. That's it for another week with a man who said very fine people marched with Nazis as our president. Don't forget, you can head to patreon.com slash the Trump scorecard to support the podcast. You can find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Trump scorecard. You can find me on Twitter at Jesse Burney. You can contact me via email, the Trump scorecard 
at gmail.com. And of course, all the stories I've talked about on today's episode are on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. Good morning. I'm Wilfred Brimley, and I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about diabetes. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. <laughs>